we all lack confidence in life. We need to know that and admit that. I think there's a need for people to believe in themselves more mm-hmm. as individuals and maybe not to be reticent about putting themselves forward. That's what I would really say to the young 22-year-old. You can achieve an awful lot. Believe in yourself. You have a lot of ability. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. Welcome to In the Doctor's Chair, where today I feel most fortunate to be in conversation with our Irish Prime Minister, Antishok Michal Martin. Mr. Martin has served as Antishok in the Republic of Ireland since June 2020 and as leader of the Fianna Fáil political party since 2011. He's been a Choc de Doyle or TD as member of the Irish Parliament for Cork City South Central since 1989. Prior to this, he was elected to Cork City Council in 1985 and served as Lord Mayor of Cork from 1992 to 1993. Previous to being on Taoiseach, he served as Leader of the Opposition from 2011 to 2020, and held previous ministries including Minister for Foreign Affairs, Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Minister for Health and Children, and Minister for Education and Science. During his time as Health Minister, Michal Martin exhibited tremendous leadership and delivered unprecedented health impacts in introducing a ban on tobacco smoking in all Irish workplaces. This made Ireland the first country in the world to introduce a full workplace smoking ban. Born in Cork City, Martin initially worked as a school teacher before entering politics. Today, Michal Martin leads in an era of unprecedented global challenge, and we look forward to hearing how influences in his own life have prepared him for such leadership governance. Welcome, Michal. If you're a leader who recognises, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. So I'm delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Antishok Michal Martin. You're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. I suppose, you know, as a medical doctor and, and as a scientist, I have to start by looking back and your contribution to the smoking ban in Ireland, I think, is monumental really in terms of the positive impact it's had on promoting smoking cessation in Ireland. Could you talk to us about that? Yes. Well, well first of all, there are times in my life when I can be a bit of a fundamentalist or when I inherit certain traits from my father. And um, when I became Minister for Health and I met uh, very proactive civil servant on tobacco, Tom Poor, who sadly passed away in the aftermath of the, of the tobacco ban. And you get briefs from different officials on different aspects of the Department of Health in the first week or two. And I found this interesting tobacco and, and Tom took me through it. He was an encyclopedia and the various proposals. Now, to me, I take the job seriously. If you're a minister for health, you have to be the strongest advocate at the cabinet. You have to be the champion mm. for health. And to me, this was a no brainer. If I talk to a cardiologist or I talk to an oncologist or to a respiratory physician, you name it. And, and, and much more than that, smoking is up there as a key 
factor in causation. And most clinicians would say to you, and even those in the acute system will say, you know, we could prevent a lot of this. And I'm big on prevention. Mm -hmm. It's just something that's in me. If you can avoid Mm -hmm. something happening, well, why not take the steps to avoid that happening? So that's the kind of sort of spirit that's informing me on this Mm -hmm. issue. I'm saying Mm -hmm. this is a no-brainer. We must do everything we can. Now, initially we banned the advertising in newspapers. And I remember the industry coming into me at Mm -hmm. the time and saying, well, this is going to hit our revenue now, but in fairness, they accepted it. They, look, they were looking for compensatory measures and there was some talk around doing more health promotion advertising, which I didn't have a difficulty with. Um, but that was the first indicator you know, of challenges that could come your way because once you want to change and turn around something, it's surrounded. I mean, the, I recall the snooker championships at the time were yes. Benson and Hedges, I think, mm-hmm. or by the tobacco industry. So we stopped that. But we actually mm-hmm. took a lesson from Australia where they, the, the state took over the sponsorship. Mm-hmm. But we actually sponsored for about two years the snooker <laughs> tournaments in Ireland. And you had this kind of situation where instead of having all the tobacco ads, you had all this yes. no smoking ads around the billiard table. So to cut to the chase, um, we then started working on comprehensive legislation. And what people sometimes forget, it's actually the 2002 legislation that's the radical breakthrough, which enables us to consider the ban on, on smoking in the workplace. We subsequently did more primary legislation to, to consolidate that. But essentially that 2002 Act was groundbreaking because it allowed for all for everything else that happened, you know, putting out of line of sight in, in, in shops for kids where, where historically cigarettes were put uh, alongside sweets and so on like that, where they were sold in packets of 10 or loosely. We banned all of that in that Act. This was a very comprehensive piece of legislation. And we followed up at the World Health Assembly in, and we were one of the leading contributors uh, to the Global Health uh, Tobacco Framework developed by the WHO, and we were very proactive. So it's a very exciting time. The ban itself became a major issue. And, uh, you know, I can come back to you on the detail, but that campaign I thought was the most invigorating public health campaign we've ever had in the country. We spent a full 12 months and more talking about public health, part all together from tobacco. I thought it was quite interesting from that point of view. And um, the health community came out in droves and we created a team and a group so that every radio program, there was a doctor on, mm-hmm. cardiologist on, and then the political system was the next. Now, to be fair, I got cross-party support and um, there had been an earlier towards the Tobacco-Free Society by the Oireachtas. And um, so the political parties were, were supportive across the board in relation to this. Some individual TDs, not so. Everybody thought I would moderate it by the end. And even within my own parliamentary party, there was concerns and people felt that I would amend the legislation. And there was all sorts of efforts made to do that. Well, I think, you know, given that one in three smokers dies from their smoking and many of the rest end up with chronic disease, it was a huge positive step in terms of our long term health in Ireland. I was only looking at the numbers only last night, you know, back in the mid 90s, almost 50 percent of teenage girls smoked. Now it's down to 13 percent. I mean, that's absolutely huge. It's huge. It's transformative and, 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 and will be for the future, you know, and that's that was a big prize. I am. I do think long term. And mm-hmm. I saw that entire legislation and the ban on, on the working places denormalizing tobacco, uh, where you consider the tobacco industry for decades normalized it among children. Mm-hmm. Uh, our task was to denormalize it. And we've succeeded in doing that. Uh, I remember going through uh, in, in Geneva, the World Health Assembly, and there was a big uh, poster of uh, the human skeleton. I had said it was about 50 diseases and tobacco was the issue. Like, yes. Uh, anything you want to name from kidneys right through, there was a tobacco sort of uh, implication. And when you, when you talk about the World Health Organization, <clears throat> that initiative has really spread throughout the world in terms of the smoking ban as well. It did. Um, what was interesting is New York had brought in a citywide ban. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember the anti-van lobby, and there was a big lobby, the Hospitality Alliance, and they were taken over to New York and they came back with headlines saying thousands of jobs lost in New York, Ireland's going to lose 30,000 jobs, etc. So I got an idea that maybe I'll go to New York and check this out. And I did. I met Mayor Bloomberg at the time and uh, he was very helpful about it, but he asked me, me to meet his officials. And interestingly, you know, we asked them, they gave us good advice on compliance, how to work with the industry to build up compliance. It's not that you go in on day one and sort of find somebody, but you actually say to them, here are the steps you need to take to build up compliance in your premises. Here was your signs should be, no ashtrays, etc. And the Secretary General, Michael Kelly at the time, asked them, what would you do now uh, in retrospect that you didn't do? And he said, we would have worried less. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a very interesting point <laughs> may, may, they were making. We were panicking as to would it be implemented, would, would it be adhered to, and they said the public will go for this. The public want this. The public will make this happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is exactly the feelings we had too. You know, would what, what, what do we do if there's 90% <laughs> disobedience? And on the morning of the smoking ban, it's very funny, uh, Jerry, the late Jerry Ryan did a piece where he sent an undercover reporter to a Dockers pub in Dublin at about six in the morning. And uh, she throws the uh, cigarette box on the counter Carmen's observing, she kind of takes out the lighter, she takes mm-hmm. out the cigarette, and just as about as she's about to light up, the barman says, no, no, sorry, can't do that in here anymore, smoking ban is on. And when that was played, hold the barman, the hell cheered, <laughs> said, <laughs> we're on our way here, we're going, to, we're going to get this through. Well, I mean, as a leader, I, I think you're clearly leading during an era of unprecedented change. So that was smoking, but now, right now, we're, we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and we've also got the climate emergency. Yes, and, and also you have geopolitics changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are worrying signs in terms of how the world is engaging, mm-hmm. be it the United States and China, and particularly the Indo-Pacific, that there's a, a lot more authoritarianism in the world. Democratic val- val- values are receding. Uh, that concerns me mm-hmm. generally, and that's why I'm passionate about our membership of the European Union. COVID has, I suppose, done something very fundamental to the human psyche. It has created a, a fragility about it, hasn't it? You know, these Absolutely. global pandemics we talked about, we, we, we produce plans to prepare mm-hmm. uh, for pandemics. I can recall myself as Minister of Health, we would have set up pandemic preparedness and uh, we thought with SARS we had it, but we didn't in 2003 and I had to deal with SARS that, that time. And remember very well going to uh, Special World Health Assembly at the WHO on SARS and we got some, there was very good lessons from uh, Singapore and Hong Kong and so on and Canada at the time. But what COVID does, it, it just questions how well advanced we are, you know, we think we uh, can't be penetrated and that um, we're invincible. And suddenly the pandemic arrives on our shores. But then resilience comes into play and society, I think, has demonstrated very significant resilience, incredible re- resilience over a two-year period. I think change will emerge from it. I think the way we live our lives into the future will be different, particularly in the foreseeable future. Absolutely. And I think it, it will also help with climate change. I think people went back and discovered nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the first lockdown in particular, it was a beautiful time. Absolutely. Uh, people were out for three months. It was novel. And I think people get that. But also the, 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 your value system begins to change as well when you reflect more. And people weren't traveling as much in terms of to the conferences or to this or that. They had more time with family and community. If we were to and look forward maybe, you know, 10, 15 years and then look back and... If if we were sitting here again and we were saying, you know, the, the climate change in Ireland has been really successful, we've met our targets, we brought in the change and it, it was to be as successful as it has been with the tobacco. What do you think are the key elements that need to happen? Well, I think in, in 15 years time, what I would like to see is fossil fuels gone in yes. terms of transport, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a parallel 
back to my prevention and health thing, if we can take diesel out of cars and, and out of buses and petrol, our streets are much cleaner. Yes. We, at a stroke, do an, an enormous amount for respiratory illness and other conditions. So that's one thing. Uh, but also we will contribute hugely to, um, to, to the climate change agenda. Far more active travel in terms of cycling, uh, walking, greenways. So there'll be more benefits there. In many ways, achieving climate change means a healthier, cleaner, higher quality lifestyle for people in 15 years' time. I'd like it sooner, um, but I think that th- this is achievable. And the avoidance of catastrophic um, weather events, because, you know, food production is a key issue here, because food production has to be sustainable. Um, because globally, if it's not, we may not be able to grow food in the future with, sure. with, with these events. And you can see what's happening in, with the desertification parts of Africa and Middle East, with, with, with the, the, the droughts that are increasing and the, what, the rains not arriving in certain locations. Um, so these are, and what I was struck when I was at COP26, and which I know, of course, the, the small island states that Ireland has been very supportive of. For them, it's now, you know. Mm. Uh, the rising sea levels is impacting on them now. The ferocity of storms, in particular, is impacting on their lives. Uh, and that could be us too. And, and we know from Belgium, the Belgian Prime Minister said 41 people died in storms this summer. So for him, climate change has arrived. I can tell, listening to Michal, that you're, you're, you're very passionate about what you believe in. Who have been the key influences in your, I suppose, your values and philosophy? I suppose ultimately it was my parents, yes. uh, my mother and father. Um, both of them left school at 12 because they had to, in the okay. financial circumstances that they would have been in. My father would have been a very uh, particularly intelligent young man. And the, the, he tells me that the Christian brothers were very upset that he had to leave. But he's, both his parents... His father had died um, and they were living in very poor circumstances in the north side of Cork. And that time his older brother was sent, you know, joined the British Army, was a prisoner of war during uh, the Second World War. He was captured by the Japanese at the fall of Singapore. And a stepbrother whose father had been killed in World War One, was in India. Um, and his younger brother and his younger sister and his older sister kind of kept them together when both parents died. So that's just a, I, I think... The resilience might come from some of that kind of family experiences that they, he, I often think of what he had to go through. Mm-hmm. My mother had a more uh, sort of less trauma, traumatized kind of upbringing in Turner's Cross. But she was, she had basic instincts. She would have been very religious in some respects. Not not, not in the sense of, um, how would I put it, not, not a zealot or anything like that, but had just an incredible faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the father would have been much more circumspect yes. because of his early experiences. Mm-hmm. So the father, in terms of my political formation, in terms of basic principles, certainly was very influential. He was a very honest person. Probably at times, um, if he was slighted or whatever, he took it too seriously. But he also had a tremendous sense of looking after the underprivileged or those who were most vulnerable, particularly children. Mm-hmm. I also recall when he died, some bus drivers, he was a bus driver in yes. life and then he became a bus inspector. So he would mentor bus drivers when they came in. And Wonderful. He said to one bus driver, and just at the, at the funeral, a bus driver came to me and he said to me, I don't care what you do, he said, make sure you get every child home and never leave a child on the side of the road, even if they don't have the fare. Wow. And that kind of summed them up, you know, to him, children were vulnerable, they must get home. Uh, and I don't care if they, if they don't have the fear. He was a bit unorthodox that way. He was not a rule man. What a wonderful man. Uh, and I remember it was a bit of fun then afterwards. I was at a, a boxing do there some years ago. And guys were saying when they used to be on the bus, mm. if the father found out what school they were from, they invariably didn't have the tickets. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd kind of walk past them <laughs> knowing they didn't have the tickets. 
but you know, but that was the nature of him. And he set up the CIE Social Welfare Club Brilliant. Uh, to look after orphans and widows. And I have I've memories of him with other busmen filling up envelopes to hand to the widows at Christmas time. And so that kind of social conscience would yes. have come from him as well. You know? Yes. And he was a boxer as well, Michal, wasn't he? He was a boxer. Yeah. He loved the boxing and he brought us up kind of enjoying. We didn't become boxers ourselves that time in the 60s in Cork. It fell by the wayside. My mother wasn't too keen on it, but we had boxing gloves for Christmas time. Santa would bring them and we would be boxing in the front garden with other kids and he'd referee. Mm. Um, and uh, he, yeah, he he was well known in Cork as a boxer. I mean, he in, in sense that he boxed for Ireland um, for 14 occasions. He boxed the European champion, Ivani de Sivny. Uh, and then he boxed the famous British boxer, Joe Bygraves, who would have fought Johansson for the world title. He fought a beat Bygraves in the City Hall over six two-minute rounds. I say that because when I was canvassing then lat- laterally in life, I thought I was going to be talking about policy. And all they wanted to talk about in Turner's Cross and Ballyfehan was, um, I was, are you the champ's son? And uh, we were there the night he beat by Griffith in the City Hall. It was a big thing in Cork in the 50s, yes. boxing. So, uh, And I think that gave us a love of sport. He loved sport. He played Gaelic football. He played soccer himself. So we were fanatics on sport in the family. Uh, and I think that's been a great joy in our lives. I think it's so interesting, you know, how, how we get so much of our values from our own parents and Often, I've often reflected my own parents are both gone now as well. And it's only when your parents are gone, you really look back and you realise just how much they gave you in terms of values and so on. Absolutely. And, and you know, I was talking yesterday to, in, in another interview with students uh, from Lockwood College who do a radio programme every year. And I felt halfway through the interview, I was talking about education the whole way along. And it's the parents, that, that was their passion. They didn't get an education. They just wanted us to get an education. And, um, you know, the mother was so happy when I got to third level. I, was, I would have been the first to get to university in the family's kind of history. Uh, they loved that. Um, and uh, I had an, a late uncle who was quite influential as well, Uncle Buddy, who was a great character. And he worked at the Albert Hall in London and would have, culturally, he was self-taught. He left school at 12, but he had read every biography of every uh, composer um, or every political leader. So history was big in the family, kind of an interest in history. And um, so, so they were delighted when we made it through education. My t- twin brother did and all the brothers and sisters did. And that to them was... I've, I've carried that on and um, to me education is a passion absolutely it's like help why because mm. whatever else happens in life if we can get a child in education they have a chance well absolutely that opens the door teach someone to fish and you feed them for a lifetime that's right um, exactly. that's exactly and I think really education is, is a great way to improve health as well on a long term basis absolutely you oh, know 100% and because um, we learn and yes th- and that's part of the, the programme CSP in schools and so mm. forth nutrition I went into a class in Galway last Friday and up on the, well, they're not blackboards anymore now, the, the white screen or whatever was um, nutrition, fruit and veg. And uh, I snapped a few questions at the kids about what's the healthiest food you're eating and so on like that. And um, it's great to see that. Mm. So you've a, you a really a fascinating background. And, and at the same time, you know, politics is, is a tough career. It's notoriously stressful. I mean, I've met many people over the years who've been in politics and I, and I know firsthand as a GP how stressful it can be for people at times. I'm sure it hasn't always been easy for you. No, no, it, it can be stressful. I like politics. Yes. I didn't think I would be a politician, by mm. the way. Um, I grew up thinking, well, cer- certainly at second level and at third level, that I would be a history teacher. But events happen and, and um, you, you become more sucked into it. And of course, Northern Ireland was a very big issue for us growing up because it was our daily diet. Of Absolutely. Bullets and mm. murder and mayhem. Oh and it was terrible. And then I'm in college. The hunger strikes are on. I go to the North as a young student without us to find out what's going on. So... I'm becoming more politicised as mm-hmm. a young student and I'm asked then to run for, 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 for local elections. I enjoy meeting people, which I think is an important um, ingredient in terms of being a politician, particularly in Irish politics where it's very close to 
the grassroots or very close to people. We're a small community. So I do think this part of my nature is, how would I put it, is, is suitable for politics, um, particularly the, the clinic side of it. I love, I love doing the clinics, which is, some people say is very hard work and it's stressful. I always saw the clinics and people coming into clinics as shining a light on the system. So you'd learn lessons from a person coming in saying, mm-hmm. this was wrong with education, I can't get my child with autism in place. And that led in 1998 to a very big initiative we took on special education where we created for the first time classes for autism and a pupil teacher ratio for children with special needs and the SNAs and all of that. But I never, and you know, in political science, people say clientelism in a kind of a disparaging way. But I've often felt that, and it's hard work, like I spent a lot of Saturdays in my younger parental life, sometimes wondering about that. You look back and say, God, it was the whole Saturday up to six o'clock. But it definitely teaches you about life and the trauma and stress that many people in their own individual lives are going through because of circumstances, accidents, bad health. Absolutely. I mean, I think general practice is very similar. You know, you're really at the coal face. You're really seeing the real struggles that people have day in and day out. Absolutely. You know, and it teaches you. And I would often go back home and say, look, count your lucky stars. Mm-hmm. I just had someone in tonight who's in a very bad apartment or flat at the time there were bedsits and so on which are damp and leaky and four years waiting for a house every day every day I go to work I realise how lucky I am and how grateful I am with the blessings I have in my life when I meet people that are really challenging absolutely yeah. with really, really I, I couldn't agree more yeah, couldn't adverse agree more, circumstances yeah, yeah. if you were looking back Michal at you know a much younger version of you say when you were 22 years old what might you tell that younger version of you now today Carry on enjoying yourself uh, <laughs> one level. And of course, I'm very, we're more conservative as we get older. Mm. And maybe the advice from a, a, someone at 60 to someone at 22 is advice they may not want to hear. Uh, but that's one level, you know, yes. because we're fearful. I'm a parent myself. I know what I did at 20, 21, 22 in terms of out late and enjoying yourself and having the crack and all of that. And you know how lucky you are certain times. Absolutely. You know, to get out of danger. And out, out of harm's way and you're all one is always worried as a parent mm. that something could happen to kids when they're out but in a, more, in, in a different way what I would say to the young 22 year old is be a bit more self-confident mm. and that's a message I have for young people when I speak at schools when I talk to young people and to children and when I was in Ministry of Education I, I remember talking to psychologists we brought, brought in a program called Walk Tall we brought mm-hmm. it fairly quickly they were talking about doing it as a pilot and I said look this doesn't cost a whole lot do it across the entire system and at the heart of it was self-esteem that if you can build up self-esteem in children and in young people they're better able to withstand peer pressures around addiction and also we we all lack confidence in life we need to know that and admit that i think there's a need for people to believe in themselves more Mm -hmm. as individuals and maybe not to be reticent about putting themselves forward that's what i would really say to the young 22 year old you can achieve an awful lot believe in yourself you have a lot of ability I think that's wonderful advice. Well, I think it's very important. That's one lesson Mm -hmm. I've learned. And also many of the senior people in industry who come into the country say this Mm. to us all of the time, that Mm. the young people in Ireland are are top class, high quality, Mm. uh, good flexibility, good adaptability. Mm. And um, I think it's very important because people hold themselves back a lot. It's probably an Irish thing, do you think, Michal? It may very well be. Mm. That's interesting. It may very well be, you know. I remember, you know, in a classroom, and I used to teach, put your hand up who wants to take part in the debate or who'll make a presentation. I mean, you might get two or three in our day, you know, uh, that would engage, you know. I recall when I was in, uh, doing English in second level, uh, the teacher was very influential. I had two teachers who were particularly influential, Tony Poor in second level and Tom Land in sixth class. But Tony Poor would ask us to watch seven days, which is the equivalent of prime time today, 
and a couple of us would watch it. So I always obviously had this kind of interest in news and stuff. And then he'd have a debate the following day about it. But invariably, there'd only be about four or five in the entire class. So the others copped on that this was very good because it meant the teacher got kind of absorbed in this and they didn't have to do the homework for that particular class. So they'd say to me, look, can you get him talking again about the program last night? Oh, geez, and just you get a good 20, 25 minutes out of this <laughs> and we're out the gap. And that became a feature, yes. you know. Uh, but it gave me confidence to, to engage in arguments. Mm. It was very wise advice from the teacher. Mm, I think confidence is, is such an important thing. You're so right. Not not arrogance, but just confidence. That's the balance, yeah. yeah. Not being brash or you know mm. everything, but just yes. be a bit self-confident. Stay humble, but be confident yeah. in your own ability as well. Absolutely. Exactly. You mentioned parenting, Michal. And I mean, obviously, being a parent nowadays is very challenging. It is. Um, and it's different. It's much more structured at one level. Where, when I was a child, we wandered. Um, we, we walked the streets. It was... Uh, I don't know if you've read Paddy Clark Ahaha by Roddy Doyle. Mm-hmm. It's about kind of Dublin growing up in the 60s and 70s, yes. really, and, and, and so on. And uh, when I read it, I said, God, that's our childhood, <laughs> you know, to a degree in terms of gangs and mm. you're out and about the place playing soccer on the streets or all of that. And um, nowadays, you know, we didn't have online. So the bullying, the intimidation, the self-esteem that we've just spoken about is really challenged mm. online. Absolutely. The problem is that child or the young person sometimes are on their own mm. reflecting on this or getting this at them and I'm struck by the degree to which the online phenomenon is so absorbing of their time mm. it is not quite the real world in terms of engagement with people and people can lose their perspective uh, perspective is very important in life that you take a broad perspective a longer term perspective um, in, in, in life that the immediate crisis is just that it's an immediate crisis it's something that in the fullness of time you will get over so it is very challenging. And there's pluses as well, by the way. You know, there's lots of exciting things that parents and children can engage in. Um, but it is challenging for parents. Uh, and the violence at times worries. You know, you come across some terrible tragedies where youngsters are stabbed or murdered or mm. killed in, you know, what were enjoyable, meant to be enjoyable occasions. And uh, so that's, that's, I suppose that's an ongoing worry for parents. I think you're so right. I think the environments we expose ourselves to can have a big impact on our on our emotions and how we feel and how we think. And nothing happens in a vacuum. So it's it's mm. important to be mindful of the, the time and energy you're giving to social media and giving to, to various platforms. Absolutely. And the whole algorithm and how that mm. works mm. Uh, is, 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 is a huge problem, I think, mm. in, in, in sort of, um, if you like, consolidating that sort of narrow worldview uh, and narrow perspective, you know. So a phrase I'm very fond of is actions speak louder <coughs> than words. So you are Minister for Health. How do you stay healthy yourself? When I was Minister for Health, there was a GP as Minister for State for Health, Tom Moffat and Mayo. And I think his sons in that practice are involved in the Mayo football team right. for many, many years. But Tom said to me, because I was in education, and in education you're going from school to school, great thing about education, there's sandwiches and cakes at every school. Yeah, They love the big uh, spread. And I was kind of living on sort of, um, if you look at the photographs, you can see the old bumpness like, but you're kind of eating the sandwiches and you're getting on and I know. on. Moffat called me and one day he said, three meals a day, he said, golden rule, three meals a day and you'll be fine. And I've stuck to that ever since. Good. Uh, and I make a point of creating time to eat. Now, I then started reading Patrick Halford, Food for the Brain. Yes. So I'm known to be a bit of a 
uh, how they put it, kind of fussy about food. Mm. Uh, you pay Mary, attention to what you eat. Mary gives up, like she just says, you know, I get my own there. And, and Mary kind of knows what I'm kind of yes. sensitive to know. Uh, so I do a lot of plant-based foods. Uh, based, the egg is a great food. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a great line in one of Halford's book that the most healthiest egg you can eat is uh, laid, laid by a hen that's fed mm. linseed, you know. No, I jokingly say to people, God, go into the supermarket and look for the egg that's laid <laughs> by the hen that's fed by linseed. But anyway, you get the drift. But it was interesting, some of those kind of, you know, the tomato is very important, mm-hmm. kind of food. Mm-hmm. Eat so I'm into that kind of thing. Now, well, GPs, by the way, sometimes can say, that's a load of rubbish, a load of nonsense. No, uh, well, and, I'm, uh, I'm a scientist, so I, yeah. I'm only always interested in what's the evidence? What's yeah, the evidence? Yeah. And the evidence now is that the Mediterranean-based diet, which is largely yeah. plant-based, lots of colour, rainbow colour every day, um, yeah. whole foods, maybe oily fish and so on, lots of olive oil, reduces your risk of heart, heart disease by 30%, stroke 30%, diabetes, some cancers, positive mental health is boosted and you support longevity. That's the science. So you're on the, on well, the that's money That's why I follow there. that. Yeah. I mean, the Okinawa story, I don't know, yes. there was a book written on that. I read that. Yes, and Blue Zones. Yeah, it was very mm. interesting. 80% it's fascinating. 80% of their diet was plant, but they also did the, sort of martial arts from the childhood up. So they discovered, I think, that they had the highest number of centenarians yes, in the world. Yes, that's right. Um, and because they, they had a database, they had the birth registers mm. and so on like that. I found that fascinating. And... Um, uh, so that look, there was. So I watch what I eat. Uh, no, I do eat protein and meat and so on, but mm-hmm. it's balanced. And I think the balanced diet. And I love salads. And I think that's from the mother's side. I think she, yes. she was a finicky eater. But I love the salads. I'm comfortable eating salads. I don't need the big dinner every day, but I will eat salads. Well, you you mentioned eighty percent there, but yeah. you know, eighty percent of your health is down to how you live your lifestyle habits. In other words, the food you eat, the exercise you take, the sleep yeah. you get. Your ability to recharge from stress accounts for about eighty percent of how your genes eventually express themselves. So we all have the ability to make a massive improvement in our long term health by simply making small changes. Yeah, no, I, I, I then the exercise. I walk a lot. Good. That comes from again the father's side. And when I ended sport, I used no, I wasn't a great player, but I used uh, train and so on and do all of that. But then I think your critical period is when you leave that. Yes. Now I'm not a great gym person, which is a weakness. Mm-hmm. I should be doing more body work and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, but I walk. A lot and get great enjoyment from it, well, both mentally and physically. Yes, Hippocrates said, if you're in a bad mood, go for a walk. Well, and if right. you're still in a bad mood, go for another walk. I mean, walking <laughs> <laughs> is so good for you. Yeah, and yeah. you're talking about strength training. And of course, a bit of strength training can be great, but no one's perfect. Yeah. And yeah. and particularly with the global pandemic, I think good enough has to be good enough. Point we, taken, yeah. You the know, sleep we, is where you could improve upon. We could mm. in, in, in politics. We tend to work late and we concentrate our work. Uh, and then you know you get home late you tend to hang around you know read or whatever mm. and um, so I've got to improve on the sleep mm. side of it um, but other than that I mean I don't uh, no, no and again it can get stressful when you have to make decisions around COVID and stuff of course. like that but by and large I can go with the flow you know Have you read Matthew Walker's book Why Sleep Matters? No I haven't I'd highly recommend okay. it I read it a few years ago and I, I would never look at sleep the same way again okay. as a doctor when you, when you understand the science of sleep you really do prioritise it in a different way. Yeah, that's for reading. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. Could you give our listeners three take-homes, Michal, for a resilient mind? I mean, it's very difficult. I, I don't know whether some of this is what you just inherit or I think you need to switch off, have that capacity to switch off. Like the reading, the walking, the music are very important. To lose yourself in some other space from your workspace, I think is important. Uh, I do think that that walking piece in nature is very, very important. And also then in terms of, I said it there about the long term and having always be able to put perspective 
I remember a teacher saying to me one time during the leaving certificate, he came to the class actually, he said, look, this seems to be a big deal for all of you right now, but I can tell you in 10 years' time, you'll be looking back saying, what was all the fuss about? Now, that at one level could say, relax and don't study, but that's not what he meant. Uh, he, was say, he was basically saying, what you think is a crisis now, you'll be looking back in a couple of years saying to yourself, what in the name of God was I getting so excited about? And I think that's important for resilience, that when you're in the middle of a real storm, yes, take the long view. Mm. And, and that, that helps resilience, I think, if you think that way with that framework in mind. And I tend to do that. It's really interesting. That's what the Stoic philosophers used to advocate. People like Marcus Aurelius, the leaders in Rome over 2,000 years ago, they used to talk about when you had a problem, imagine you were a bird and you go up to 30,000 feet in the air and look down at your position on Earth and see how small you are in the context of the universe and how small your problem really is. You're educating <laughs> me, reassuring me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and finally, Michal, for you, what's the meaning of life? That's a showstopper uh, in many ways. To me, the, the, the meaning of life, first of all, family is a core part of that. Community is a core part of that. And then by extension, the world is a community. So let, uh, letting the world in a better place when you leave it mm -hmm. than when you start it. And the essentials are the New Testament in many respects. If we live by some of the basics mm -hmm. in that, will get us through. That, 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 that and, and also that I have a really strong sense that life is short. So it's important to realize that and to value every moment of life um, from that perspective. And that's why, since a child, I've never quite understood violence mm -hmm. or war. I cannot, look, I can't, as a historian, I can rationalize it. I can do mm. all of that. But when I look at it from the perspective of our lives are short, mm. that should inform how we approach yes. all sorts of issues uh, during our lives. Absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful having you in the Doctor's Chair podcast today, Michal. Keep leading, keep inspiring and keeping an advocate for positive change in all that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. You've given me cause for reflection uh, and that's important too. And I <laughs> wish you the very best uh, Thank in, you. in your practice and in, in the work that you do. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.